This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This, this is the bonfire on the Blaze Radio Network. Ah, yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the bonfire. This is the new open that you just heard, and it is officially now one year of bonfire on the Blaze Radio. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're too kind. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's enough. All right. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's my it's been a year since I've been on the Blaze Radio. I can't I can't believe that. I've missed, I believe, maybe two or three episodes this whole year. I managed to go something like 46 weeks in a row until I got sick and then technology problems and then the headquarters moving and just any sorts of problems. But I'm still here and I'm glad to be here because life is good. And you come to the bonfire for the important stuff, such as movie reviews, book reviews, and just really whatever the hell I want to talk about. So with that being said, let's jump into this. The movie review for Ip Man. Have you heard of that movie? Maybe, maybe you haven't. It is a foreign film, and it is a kung fu film. (laughs) So, uh, I'll bet most of you haven't. Well, here we are. Bonfire is recommending that you see it. It is on Netflix. And of course, you can still find it on YouTube. You can buy the DVD like I did if you want to. It can be subtitled and you hear the Chinese that they're speaking. Or you can turn on, what is it? The dubbing. And watch the English coincide with the Chinese lip reading. It's funny. But this is not a funny film. Far from it. It is by far... One of the few five out of five movies that I can think of. You know, the official bonfire rating, five out of five, five logs. I've given that to a couple, you know, on the website. But this one, I really can't think of something wrong with it. Maybe I'm biased. But let me go ahead and play the trailer here for you. And it's not the most impressive trailer. This movie is about eight, nine years old. And like I said, it's a foreign film. So, of course, when they make a trailer and they try to show it to UK or US audiences, it's kind of cheesy sometimes. So, let's go ahead and just uh, play this real quick. When Japan invaded China, they ruled with a deadly fist. Deadly fist. Many rose to fight against them. But only one man had the secret. A warrior legend. Conquered and oppressed. Who never lost his honor. 
Very solid. Very solid. By far, I think the best kung fu movie I've ever seen. And I haven't seen very many. I know friends of mine who are more into that than I am. But I was very impressed with this movie. And here's why. I made some notes. Which I rarely do. But here you go. It is an hour and 45 minutes. That to me is the sweet spot for movies. Not too long, not too short. It's a biography of sorts. It's historical. It is based in reality. So it's not just a purely fictionalized story, although those are fun. This one is a little different because it took place right before World War II broke out, and then you see a little bit of it as well in the movie. So it's historical. It's got some truth to it. And Ip Man actually existed. This wasn't a character that was just written. He actually existed. He was the teacher, as a matter of fact, of Bruce Lee. Okay, I think we all know Bruce Lee, all right? The guy who taught Bruce Lee is this man, Ip Man, all right? Honorable. <clears throat> like it said in the trailer, he never lost his honor. Yeah, it, it's true. But it, when you watch the movie, you see he's a very respectable guy. And in this time, you know, and actually throughout Chinese history and really Asian history, whenever someone issues a challenge to you, you have to accept it and fight, give it all you've got. And then when you lose, you respectfully lose. You bow, you bow to him and you say, thank you for the, uh, the duel, for the fight. You know, I respect you. And then your uh, victor says the same thing to you. Thank you for fighting me. I respect you. That's the idea. It's all about honor and dignity. So that's what happens here. He fights fellow Chinese in the city of Foshan, and they all respect one another. They still fight, and they get really physical, but they still respect one another. And what's interesting is the Chinese from up north come down south to fight the other Chinese, and so this is during a time period when the Chinese still kind of don't get along. There's a lot of racial um, and ethnic problems that they have. But to be fair, who doesn't already have those? All right. So they all fight together. They respect one another. And Ip Man is the most respectable of them all. Even if he beats you, he says, well, it was just luck. Have a good day. Hey, let's go get a bite to eat. Let's have some tea. Let's sit here and talk. He's, he's like a cultured martial arts master. And I respect that. I like that. He's very mild-mannered, very polite. But then when it's time to kick a little, little butt, he does that. He's perfectly capable of doing it. He does it to everybody. He's the master, and it's fantastic. I like, I love that shtick. Silent but deadly kind of thing. No, not farting. For those of you whose mind went there, that's not what I'm talking about. Great music. I love movies that have great music. That means they took the score seriously. They actually got someone worth their salt and did a good job. I appreciate this musical score. Great action. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's action scenes every 20 minutes. And it doesn't get overwhelming or boring. They sprinkle it throughout the movie and then keep the emotional, kind of sad, slow, melancholic side to it as well. So it's not just a blowhard, like, violent action movie like the 300, you know, with Gerard Butler, <laughs> where it's nothing but action, just over the top. Which sometimes, if you're in the mood for that, go right ahead. I am every now and then. But it's not like 300. It has believable action. And there's a number of, you know, just like in any kung, foreign kung fu movie, you'll have a person who gets punched in the 
in the leg, in the knee, and he goes flying across the room. It's kind of funny, actually, but you're just like, whoa. It's just fun to watch, and that's just the way they make kung fu movies. I think that's fun. But these actors, they're the real deal, okay? These are martial arts experts, and so when they start fighting, you can tell they're actually hitting one another. They're skilled. They know what they're doing. They probably choreographed it themselves. I respect that. It's not like white Hollywood. Keanu Reeves. I'm not trying to pick on white people here or anything, saying like, oh, well, you're just, you're just, you just suck. No. But when it's not your living, you haven't devoted yourself to it like these people have. You can tell the difference on screen. All right. Fast forwarding your Kung Fu to make it look like you're actually going that fast is cheesy. Uh, they don't really do that in this movie. There might be lots of cuts. But they said, all right, here's a sequence of punches and kicks and spins. Let's film that first. And then they piece it together like that. Sure. But these characters, these actors are actually doing those moves and they're quick and they're efficient. It's, it's pretty incredible to watch, if you ask me. So it's good action. It's fun. It's exciting. It's real to a degree, more so than what you might see in other movies. And who doesn't love Kung Fu? You know, hand-to-hand combat. That stuff is fun. The good story pacing. I think it flowed very nicely and introduced you to who he is, his family, the city, the way of life. Then the Japanese come, the new way of life, more fighting, more family, sort of being beaten down by the Japanese, and then the Chinese slowly kind of coming together, and then another battle at the very end. It, it flowed very nicely, I thought. I wasn't jarred at any point. I wasn't bored at any point. Like I said, hour 45, that's pretty good. Get it all done in an hour 45 and keep my attention and keep me entertained? Good for you. Bravo. And like I said, here's the final point, really. Surprisingly emotional. It is. It's not just a dumb, um, lowest hanging fruit kind of movie. Lowest common denominator. No, there was some legitimate emotion in here, I thought. Where I'm watching it and I think, wow, there's some pretty good actors in here. I can kind of feel their pain, even though they're speaking Chinese and sometimes it's kind of goofy. But I still got emotional. I still thought, wow, that was a powerful scene. That was good. I liked it. Because I'm not going to give anything away. But about an hour into the movie, there's this one particular chapter, one particular scene, where Donnie Yen, that's the actor who plays Ip Man, really goes to town (laughs) on 10 Japanese martial artists. He fights all 10. That is a powerful scene. And, you know, the moments, the minutes leading up to that fight, I thought it was appropriate. It was powerful. You might even say it was beautiful. And then, of course, you're on the side of the Chinese in this movie because the Japanese, World War II, are invading. And you think, what the hell are you doing? Why don't you get out of here? And so the Chinese suffer. A lot of them are killed, run out of town. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. But that's World War II. There was a lot of that going on. So here's the perspective of the Chinese that you're like, oh, yeah, I guess Japan's first victims were its own people and China and the surrounding areas, Taiwan. And yeah, so they didn't just attack Pearl Harbor like a bunch of pansies. You know, punching us in the back, stabbing us in the back. But I digress. So there you have it. The bonfire recommendation of the movie Ip Man. Back from 2008, 2009. Highly recommended. Five out of five. Gave you my reasons. Done and done. This is the bonfire. On demand. On the Blaze Radio Network.
The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. This is The Bonfire On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Here's your host, Andrew Herzog. All right, time for another book review. Here we are. It's called Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant. And if you know Malcolm Gladwell, which I've mentioned him here before on the show and did a book review of him, you know, David and Goliath was one of the books he wrote. Malcolm Gladwell says about this one, an insightful, wonderfully new take on the world from one of my favorite thinkers. <laughs> if Malcolm Gladwell tells you one of my favorite thinkers, then this Adam Grant guy must be pretty good himself. So let's go ahead and read a bit of the explanation here, the synopsis, and then I'll find a couple quotes and make my case on why you should probably read this book as well. In his new book, Adam Grant, one of the generation's most compelling and provocative thought leaders, again addresses the challenge of improving the world around us, but now from the perspective of becoming a trailblazer, choosing to go against the grain, battling conformity, and bucking outdated traditions. How can we stand up for new ideas, policies, and practices without risking our reputations, relationships, and careers? Using surprising studies and stories spanning the world of business, politics, sports, and entertainment, Grant debunks, debunks excuse me, the common belief that successful nonconformists are born leaders who boldly embrace risk. Originals explains how anyone can spot opportunities for change, recognize a good idea, overcome anxiety and ambivalence, and make suggestions without being silenced. Grant demonstrates how originality can be launched, unleashed, sustained, offering practical insights on how individuals can find allies in unlikely places. Leaders can find or can fight groupthink, and parents and teachers can na- nurture their children to think for themselves. The payoff is a set of groundbreaking insights about how rejecting conformity can improve our circumstances and propel us forward. People who champion originality have the same fears and doubts as the rest of us, but what sets them apart is that they don't freeze or faint in the face of challenge. They take action anyway. Originals will give you the knowledge and the courage to advance your own ideas. All right. There's actually more to the synopsis, but I gave you those pieces. So, the idea here. Like, oh, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, unique people, Steve Jobs, you know, all those people. They must be born that way, and they must love risk. Oh, that's just that type of person. I guess I'll never be like them. I can't do that. No. Adam Grant doesn't think so. So let me go ahead and find a couple quotes here, which for me, I thought were the most you know, thought-provoking, and that stuck with me. Great creators seek out the broadest perspectives. Success is not usually attained by being ahead of everyone else, but by waiting patiently for the right time to act. So, about being successful, it's not about being the first one there. Oftentimes, that's actually the worst thing you can do. It's better to wait by the sidelines and patiently wait for the right time to act. That's what he suggests, thinking, hey... You know, procrastination can be a good thing. Nothing is completely original. Yes, I've said that before. You know, everything is derivative of something. Some story, 
some insight. You're standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, that's what science is, for example. You didn't just come up with something completely all on your own and say, well, I did this all on my own. No, you took the work of other people, but then expanded on it. Same thing with creativity. You think, all right, well, what's out there already? Hmm, let me tweak it a little bit. Let me see what I can add to it. And then we say, all right, there's a new idea. Yeah, it's true. So nothing is completely original. Don't worry. Things can be derivative to a point, and that's fine. Let's find another one. The hallmark of originality is rejecting the default and exploring whether or not a better option exists. So keeping your mind open. Instead of people just saying, well, that's the way we've always done it. Think, well, wait a minute. Why? Because I'm just curious. And then when you explain it to me, hmm, I wonder if there's even a better way to do it. And you're not doing it just because you want to fight the man or something. You think, hmm, I wonder if there's something that's just even better, where even more people can benefit or do more work. It's worth those thoughts, that kind of thinking. He does say, though, once people pass an intermediate level in the need to achieve, there is evidence that they actually become less creative. So he kind of gets towards middle management, for lack of a better phrase. If you've made it far enough, you think, all right, I'm going to kind of let up on the gas a little bit. I'm going to kind of slow down. And then you might become eh, a bit less creative. Fair. It's people who are at the bottom of the ladder and the top of the ladder that are most creative. He's, he, uh, he suggests that. Originality is an act of creative destruction. Advocating for new systems often requires demolishing the old way of doing things. Yeah? True? Here is something that I just made me feel better and was kind of pleasantly surprised by. Entrepreneurs who kept their day jobs had 33% lower odds of failure than those who quit. So I'll repeat that, and here's what it means. You've heard people say, well, if you're not really happy, you should quit your day job and go follow your dreams. Devote all your time to it. We've all heard that right. You should give it your all. Don't keep your day job and try to do this dream, this business of yours. You should just quit that job and then do nothing but your business. He says, well, hold up. Entrepreneurs who actually kept their day jobs and then started a business themselves on the side had 33% lower odds of failure than those who quit. He's saying, hey, people actually kept their day job and started a business. Those people were actually more successful. So no, don't quit. Don't just quit and dive all up into something that's reckless. Entrepreneurs are actually risk averse. We don't love it. We just try to balance our spreadsheet, as it were. We can be cautious in our day jobs and say, great, that's paying the bills and that's keeping me afloat. Then you can be risky and gutsy on the side with your business because you say, hey, I got that fail-safe. That fail-safe is my day job. If you have nothing and you're being really risky with your business and that's all you have now, well, then what are you doing? That's irresponsible. So it's a different perspective than the ones who just say, well, those with courage, just keep fighting. You'll do it. Winners only do that. So quit your job and throw all in. No, don't do that, he suggests. This is the central benefit of having a balanced risk portfolio, he says. Successful originals take extreme risks in one area and then offset them with extreme caution in the other. So, like I said, keep the day job, but then lose your mind on the business on the side because then you're safe. You know you are. You're like, I got extreme caution over here. I still have my day job and I got my 401k. I'm good. Whew, I can take a deep breath. 
But on this other side, pff, man, I'm just going to go crazy and see what the hell happens. That's where you can be risky and be responsible at the same time. Entrepreneurs feel the same fear, the same doubt as the rest of us. What sets them apart is that they just take action anyway. So, we're all scared. We're all questioning, like, well, what am I doing? What makes the successful ones different is that they say, eh, screw it, I'm going to do it anyway. And they keep moving forward. They're scared, but take action anyway. The biggest barrier to originality is not idea generation, it's actually idea selection. They're constrained by a shortage of people who excel at choosing the right novel ideas. So he says, there's no shortage of ideas themselves, there's, they're all over the place. Patents, stories, different concepts. Humanity is good at generating ideas, okay? Originality and success is actually about idea selection. Knowing which ones are terrible and which ones are good. It's about finding that right novel idea. And he actually talks about Seinfeld in the book as an example, saying people thought it was actually going to be a terrible show and that it wouldn't go anywhere, but then it did. So there's an example of idea selection that most people got wrong. And of course, we tend to be overconfident when we evaluate ourselves. Yep, says that here. On average, creative geniuses weren't qualitatively better in their fields than their peers. They simply produced a greater volume of work. Now that stuck with me. As someone who's trying to do a podcast and an entertaining show, and he's relaying information and things that I think are interesting and important, and writing on the side, I'm thinking, wow, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I doing well at all? I don't know. I need feedback. That's where you need to ask people, for sure. But he brings up in this book a couple of examples, and one that comes to mind right now. Mozart, for example, wrote dozens, hundreds of pieces of music, composed all of that, but he's remembered for maybe a handful of pieces? Yeah. What is the success rate on that? It's terrible. But you only need one big success. He says, look, the only way to get to that success is actually just to keep plugging along. You're not, Mozart's not necessarily better than some other dude who was practicing music at the same time back in his day. He just happened to produce more. So then when you had producing more, you're more likely to find that success, to finally get it right, to finally find something that appeals to the people. They just simply produced a greater volume of work. That was encouraging to me that that exists. Hey, just keep writing. Just keep doing your thing. Keep working. Keep going at it and have it be a years-long process for sure. Then you can develop the skills. You be slowly become better at it. And even if you screwed up, even if you made this great success and then a lot of duds for months and then found one more piece of success, that's normal. That's fine. That's respectable. Others have done that. You're not going to be successful 100% of the time. And that shuts a lot of people down. They think, you know what? I don't even want to get started because I'm, I, there's so much work to do and it has to be perfect. It ain't going to be perfect. Just do it. And if people trash your idea and say, hey, you suck, you're terrible, so what? Shrug it off and say, well, I'm trying to do something here. I'm still generating content. I'm still trying to work on it. I'm going to keep creating. So let's find one more. Doo, 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 doo. Here, ah, here we go. Back to the sort of procrastination point I made a few minutes ago. You don't have to be the first to be an original, Adam Grant says. Delaying progress 
actually enables you to spend more time considering different ways to accomplish your goal, rather than seizing and freezing on one particular strategy. So of course, when you lose your mind, you think you have a brilliant idea and you want to be the first there, and a lot of companies and people try to do that, you just say, all right, here's the idea, let's run with it. And just, you, you don't bother to see if there are other options. And even if there were, you're just like, well, whatever, let's just stick with it. We're just going to keep blowing ahead with it. You need to have a little, little more room. You know, procrastination may be the enemy of productivity, but it can be a resource for creativity, Adam says. So, buy your time. Kind of watch from the sidelines and wait for the right moment to strike. Not necessarily, let me be the first one to strike. Because settlers, and that's what he calls, you know, there are the, um, what does he call them? The first ones in. The people who are the first ones to invent a product or generate an idea. They're the ones that first jump into the, into the fray. He calls the people who are second, third, and so on and so forth, settlers. They're the ones that see, hey, look at that guy over there. See what he's doing. Let's kind of copy him, tweak it a little bit ourselves, and let's try to compete for the same market. He says settlers can watch and learn from your errors. So yeah, if you're the first one, all eyes are going to be on you. They're going to be waiting for you to screw up so that they can see, hey, here's what's not to do, and then take advantage of that and then become better at it than you. So yes, that's another reason why you don't want to be the first at doing something. Buy your time, kind of see what other ones are doing, and evaluate different ways of doing it. Be a settler. Learn from other people's mistakes. Be a late mover. There can be a time and a place for that. And then back to the idea of, you know, derivation. There's nothing truly original. It's all based on something. Yes. But you can put old things in new combinations and new things in old combinations. Carl Wake says. Think about that. Putting old things in new combinations and then new things into old combinations. That is where originality can come about. Because yes, nothing is truly original. We're just taking bits and pieces of different topics, stories, skills, mixing and matching. And given enough time and persistence, you could probably create something original, something creative. Overall, I enjoyed this book. He says, venting does not extinguish the flame of anger. It feeds it. And so he explains lots of different things. This isn't just for business people. I feel that this was a psychological kind of book. And I like psychology. Once again, last year, as I said, self-discovery, discover who you are and how you can interact with other people. This year, 2017, it's about self-improvement. So now you should know who you are. Well, let's improve on it. Here's a book that can help, to a degree, just how to interact with your fellow man. I don't know. It's definitely a concern of mine to be able to get along with more people. And if only we could do that, I think we'd all be happier. This is The Bonfire on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Stupid internet stuff. Huh, click here for free. Oh, I got a virus. Smart internet stuff. And you know what? That requires a great deal of intestinal fortitude to deal with the stress each and every day of knowing your screw-ups and you have the audacity 
to say you can't deal with the stress of change because a new person got elected? Where the hell do you think I was for the last eight years? The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. Weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. The Bonfire. Here's your host, Andrew Herzog. I hear something that has to do with our society in general. Not just America, but the world. And this is not political. (laughs) As you know, Bonfire does not do politics. Not here, not ever. But here's something that I did want to comment on. The idea of UBI, universal basic income. So government handouts. Here are just three reasons why I have a problem with it. Because I saw an article that said, hey, here are a few cities that are experimenting with this idea. So I do applaud, in my opinion, those cities, those countries saying, hey, let's give it an experiment. Let's try and just see what happens. The only problem is, once you get it started, it might be hard to turn it off. Now, regardless, here's why a universal basic income is not a good thing. And the universal basic income, for those of you who don't know that, it's a form of social security in which all citizens or residents of a country regularly receive a sum of money, either from the government or some other public institution. So, you could be disabled, and yet you're still getting a check in the mail from the government saying, hey, here's your income. Here's the money you need to pay your bills. Here's the problem with that. People say we need to have that because there's a lot of automation now. More and more robots are going to be used for factories, services, you know, fast food, cars that drive themselves. You don't need taxi drivers anymore. All right. People suggest, hey, the economy is changing. Jobs are being, human jobs are being squeezed out because robots can now just do it more effectively and efficiently. So work is going to go away. There's going to be a lot less work to do because the robots are doing it for us. Well, here's the problem with that. New technology and economies have so far in human history yet make work go extinct. Back in the Industrial Revolution, they thought the same thing. Wait a minute. Interchangeable parts? Factories? Automation? That's going to put me out of business. That's going to put me out of work. Because I work with my hands. I'm an artisan. Okay. Believe it or not, humanity survived. (laughs) And there were still plenty of jobs to do. And actually more work was created. Humanity is good like that. When new technology comes around, some freak out and say, wow, the work is going away. Well, new jobs are usually created. People think of new things to do. New ways to make money. And then get other people to say, hey, I need help with this idea. I'm going to hire you now to help me make more money. And the world goes round and round. Okay, so new technology, different economies, industrial revolution, a service economy, a consumerist economy, whatever. They've been changing for human history. So far, we're all still working. There's still plenty of work to do. Okay, work ain't going away. Number two, this sense of entitlement, which you can get from food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security... That's going to change with the label, you know, of this universal basic income. 
because each individual expense, for example, Social Security, that is meant for your retirement. That was meant for people who could not work or were too old and disabled. And the government would encourage you to say, hey, we're going to tax that money from you so that we can put it over here. And then you can get it when you're 65 and support yourself. And then you won't be a burden on society. You can continue to survive. Well, the government actually just takes that money and now they blow it on whatever they want, telling us that it's actually there when it's not. But that's how it's defined. Social security. It's meant for your future, your social security. (laughs) Don't need to repeat that. Uh, Food stamps. It's meant for food. It's not meant to pay your car bill. When you get that money, it's meant for food. That's how it's labeled. And Medicare and Medicaid, that's for your health. When you now just lump it all together into a basic income, that word income, it's like almost as if you earned that. That's what income normally is. Something money that you earn. Well, when you label it that way, and then no matter who they are, you just wire them the money, you've lumped it all together and now given it no identity. Just, okay, here's some cash. There's no incentive to say, oh, this is for my health care. This is for my food. This is for my future. They're just going to say, oh, this is, this is for my TV now. This is for my vacation. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want with this money. You're distancing yourselves from it even more. And that's, that's a minor point, yes, the labels. But it's about changing psychology, your perception of it. People who are already on it. If you lump it all together and say, well, it's just going to cost the same amount of money. We just want to call it an income. We want to give them a lump sum, a monthly salary, instead of trying to handle all these little programs like food stamps and healthcare, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, and whatever, financial aid of any kind. If you're disabled, let's just put it all together into one check and send it twice a month. Uh, people are going to just continue to assume it's theirs. They deserve it. They're entitled to it. Mm. Not from the government. My bigger and final point here is society should depend on human charity, not the distant government. When the crap hits the fan, you're supposed to rely on your friends and family, not a faceless, distant entity to help keep you alive. I'm, I I mean, this is not applicable to everybody, but I do have friends and family who would be able to offer me their living room if I lost my job, and then my house, and I couldn't pay for somewhere to live. I could crash on someone's couch. And then, hopefully, by looking around these great people, I'd be able to see, all right, they're motivating me to go out and get a job because I need money. I need to support myself. I don't want to be a leech. I can work. That's because of the way that I was raised. I was raised to think that work is a good thing. I want to be productive. I want stuff to do. Some families, yes, aren't raised that way, unfortunately. They just say, what is the easiest way I can do things and make money and just kind of slide on through life? It's unfortunate. And some people don't have friends and family. They think, when I get fired, I have absolutely no one to go to. My family is dead, or I'm divorced, or I have no friends because I'm just an unruly person and I piss people off. Well, yeah. That's where the people would say, well, let's let the government step in for those kinds of people who are truly helpless and can't do it themselves. Well, we tried that. We've been doing it now, and we're just so far in debt with that idea. What should have been done, and this is me being an idealist, is rely on human charity. 
And that requires the rest of us to step up, even when we don't know the person, especially when we don't know the person. We'd say, yeah, of course, I'd help my friends and my family. What matters more and is more charitable is when you do it to a stranger. You don't just say, hey, well, let the government handle it. I don't care. No, if we as human beings helped one another, hey, this guy's out of a job. Let me help you buy that hotel room for tonight. And then let me help you tomorrow, get a meal. I'll help you do some job hunting. And then my cousin will help you tomorrow, take you to the grocery store to get some food, whatever. If human beings helped human beings, that's really the way we should do it. Unfortunately, the further along we go into this government entitlement stuff, you're just going to making it too easy, too lazy. And then we're all just slowly pushing each other away. No one wants to take responsibility for their own actions. And nobody wants to take responsibility to help the people who really do need help. There's so much wrong with it. Okay? Lord knows. A universal basic income. No. An absolutely bloody, terrible idea. The Bonfire. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com liars. The Bonfire. Here's your host, Andrew Herzog. Ah, the D2 block. Thank you for coming back to the final bit of The Bonfire. On this one-year anniversary of The Bonfire, by the way, I wrote this article the other day. It's on the Medium page, which you can find via my Twitter. The Twitters. I called it Embrace the Hobbit Lifestyle. Quote, If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. J.R.R. Tolkien. I can't tell you how much I love and agree with this brilliant quote. Too Too many of us focus on the career and the money and the stuff we have. Instead, we'd be turning our attention to the simple pleasures in life like food, joy, and music. Every human being needs food, no question. So that is an excellent crossroad to find something in common with a stranger and bond with one another. I believe cheer is a choice, and it's very contagious, so do your part to spread it like an epidemic, and our world probably won't be so troubled. Song is a uniquely human endeavor found nowhere else in nature, and participating in it is wholesome and relaxing. And of course, enjoying all of this with others makes life worth living. We're here for others not ourselves. If we prioritized good food over winning the argument, it would be a merrier world. If we prioritized cheer over pessimism and jealousy, it would be a merrier world. And if we prioritized song over material possessions, it would be a merrier world. Food, cheer, and song are core staples of the Hobbit lifestyle, and I think Tolkien was onto something when he introduced us to them. The Hobbit lifestyle should be the human lifestyle. That is just my opinion. Food and cheer and song. If we valued that more than hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is quite exactly what the bonfire is about. Granted, this previous segment about UBI, Universal Basic Income, was probably the most political thing 
I've ever done on this show where I did say the word government. <laughs> Most of the time I don't because I just don't want to talk about that here. I don't want to share that with you. I don't want you to listen to this podcast and take it out into the world and then bitch and moan about more politics and government. Okay, well, there are much better people suited for that topic than I am. I feel I am perfectly suited for movies, music, food, travel, video games, sports even, even though there are people even more on top of that than I am. <laughs> the idea here, though, is where are our priorities? Are you someone who just wants straight-up cash and you want stuff? Okay, then Bonfire is not for you. If you are a hardcore Democrat, this show is not for you. If you're an anal Republican, this show is probably not for you. Okay? I'm looking for the universal things that we can agree on. Or at least meat on, okay? Like I said in this stupid article here about food. Every human being needs to eat. Okay. Why the hell don't we talk about food more often? Hey, what's your favorite food? What do you enjoy about it? Do you like cooking? Let's cook it together. Human being, we can bond and spend time together over something like that. That's why I value meals that much. Not just because of my blood sugar level, but it's good. And music. True music, not rap. <laughs> Let's be clear. Movies, culture, stories. It is very important to maintain cheer and joy and share that with others. I feel it's actually kind of almost sinful or wrong if you're just a sourpuss and you're just going around life complaining, always pessimistic. You're just dragging people down. That is not healthy. Now, I still have those days, absolutely. I do my best to quickly notice them and then get back up my, on my feet and say, all right, don't do that again. Look for the signs that's going to lead you down that dark road of being sad, mad, pissy. Avoid it. And then when it happens, which sometimes it still does, you just say, all right, well, let me get out of it as quickly as I can. Because others are depending on me to be happy. Just like I would depend on them to be happy and to motivate me to be the best person I can be and vice versa. We can all pick each other up with just cheer and joy. You know, this isn't the happy flowers and lollipops, rainbows and unicorns cheese where I'm like, oh, if the world just loved a little more. Okay. I'm not talking in platitudes. I'm thinking, I'm kind of breaking it down here, I think. Food, movies, music, video games, sports, you can probably find something with anybody to talk about and say, oh, hey, here's a subject matter we can discuss with one another and try to find some common ground and make one another laugh and smile. That's how you can see the freaking human being there on the other side right in front of you, okay? Jeez. There's enough idiots in the world, okay? Let's do our best not to be one of them, and let's do our best to try to remove the idiocy. Not the idiots, not the people, just the disease, the stupid crap that gets in the way, okay? All right, that's enough. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to The Bonfire here on the one-year anniversary here on The Blaze Radio. You can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, and I'll say Instagram. I have, I'll say this, backed off a little bit of the Instagram. I've decided to focus more on podcasting and writing versus taking pictures, just for the time being. And even for Facebook and Twitter, do I post as often as I used to? No. I'm trying to generate genuine quality 
content and just do it on a consistent basis, at least weekly, you know, with the podcast and with articles, having Michael Tan, Carolyn McKenzie, uh, and other people writing for the Bonfire website, bonfirethoughts.com. I'm just hoping to say, look, let's get some genuine quality going and let's just develop this habit of doing our best to find some common ground. With that being said, Andrew Herzog out. You've been listening to the Bonfire, Bonfire. on the Blaze Radio Network. <laughs>